Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Good morning, church family. Good morning. Um, I want to read to, read to you guys a passage out of Zephaniah. So in, in Zephaniah, he's a prophet, okay, and he's rebuking the tribe of Judah because they're worshiping other gods, okay? So that's what's, that's what's going on here. So in, in chapter 1, verse 5, it says, this is Zephaniah speaking on behalf of God here. It says, I will also destroy those who worship me and swear loyalty to me, but then take oaths in the name of the god Milcom." Okay, so I think that this is, this actually struck me when I was reading this, and I think that this is significant because there's an underlying implication here, and it's an implication of exclusivity, okay? You should worship God only, okay? So the thing is that God doesn't want us to worship, He doesn't only want us to worship Him, but He wants our exclusive worship, okay? And it seems that when our worship is divided, it's as if we're not worshiping Him at all. So I think that this principle could be understood, for me, understood better if you consider marriage, Okay, so there's a unique and an exclusive love that couples ought to only have for each other. Okay, a unique sort of love that couples only have that's shared among one another. Okay, so what if a husband says to his wife, I love you and my heart is yours. Okay, that's great. That's, that's like ideal. You're there, you know. Um, but what if he says the same thing to another woman? Would she feel the love that she deserved as his wife? I don't think so because his loyalty has been divided. I would imagine that actually his wife would feel severe pain, okay? And the husband, okay, the husband might be a doofus, and he might say, well, I said that I love you, okay? Yeah, sure, but what is loyalty worth if it's been divided? It's as if you don't love her at all if you choose to share your, your love with someone else, that exclusive love, okay? And I think that it's the same with our relationship with the Lord. Divided love and loyalty is like no love and loyalty at all. He says, I will destroy those who worship me and swear loyalty, but then take oaths to another God. So, church, you might be saying, hey, that's tough. I don't know if I could do that. Well, the, the struggle is that loyal love is tough. So, church, how much better, how much better is loyal love than divided love for your family and for the, your relationship with the Lord? So, church, I'm challenging us this morning to put aside any idol that would captivate your attention and worship the Lord today and for eternity with a love that belongs exclusively to him. So, I mean, after all, if you consider his love for us, hasn't it been good? Amen. So let's worship the Lord this morning with a, a unique and exclusive sort of, lo- sort of love that we only have for him. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for the love that you have for us. Thank you so much for being the kind of God that could truly captivate our hearts for an eternity. Lord, help us to worship you and you alone exclusively, Lord, as the king of our heart, as the center of our mind, as the center of our heart, and as the the wholeness of our strength. Lord, help us to worship you today and for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 37. We'll look at our text in just a moment. Um, You might be interested to know that of all the names in the book of Genesis, only Abraham and Jacob... um, are, are said more times than Joseph. Uh, that's not exactly true. There's, there's Jacob uh, 176 times. He's mentioned the most of all the, the personalities, all the, all the humans in the book of Genesis, 176 times. Abraham is kind of tricky because if you look up his name, you also have to look up Abram if you're going to catch all the instances of him, and you'll see him 175 times. And then Joseph at 143, and then it drops off after that. So Joseph's really significant. And then here's, here's the really significant part is that God is mentioned approximately 400 times. So who's the main character in the book of Genesis? It's God, isn't it? But he's using different people at different ages. And what this tells us is who, is, who are the important figures in the book? The story of Genesis is telling us from creation to the establishment of a nation of people. And in no other book do you see the acceleration of the story like this, except maybe in the end. It's kind of interesting how the Bible does that. At the very beginning, uh, I mean, it accelerates big time from Adam and Eve to the, to the nation of Israel leaving Egypt. Um, and then um, you see maybe at the end of the book, in the book of Revelation, things accelerating in a mighty way. But there's this takeoff that takes place 
And uh, the most important person in the book of Genesis by far is God himself. He lives on as generation after generation passes away. They come and go. And his plan has moved forward, even though many people don't know that it's happening. There's a lot of people that don't know it's happening. And isn't that true today, that there's a lot of people that don't know what God is doing in our world. And in fact, sometimes if we're not careful, we can, we can fail to see what God is up to and what he's doing in our world. But, but his plan moves on, and his plan moves on in spite of the fact that some people try to block his plan or stand in the way of it or actively rebel, rebel against it. And so for some people, the time just runs out on them. They don't get to see his plan come to completion. Isn't this what the book of Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse 13? All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. And so we don't get to see the full completion of God's plan in our lifetime. But if we have eyes of faith, we can perceive what God is doing, and then we can experience the fullness of it, not only in this life, but in the life to come. How many are grateful for that? That I think they're, they used to call them jumbotrons. I don't know what they call them nowadays. But in heaven, I think there will be some kind of way that we can, we can see the whole plan of God unfold and know that he's been at work through all of this. Joseph is mentioned in Hebrews 11. It says in verse 22 that by faith Joseph, when he was near the end, he spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, and he gave instruction concerning the burial of his bones. Okay? When the Israelites left Egypt, they took Joseph's bones with them back to the land of promise. Seeing God's plan unfold and being a part of it is really priceless. It's more important than a lot of the pursuits that we involve ourselves in. Would you agree to that, that that if God is doing something, that's more important than anything that we could be doing. Amen. Crickets. Is that true or not? It's true, isn't it? That whatever he's doing is more important than what we might otherwise be doing. It's more important than the American dream. And if, if you're tired of hearing me say that, I just want you to know that we have this American vision and con- conception of what life is all about. And often it runs into direct conflict with what God is trying to do in our world. And we need to come to terms with that as Christians and realize that God's kingdom is much bigger than America. Amen. Sorry to break the news. But he's got something big he's doing. It's priceless. And it's the only thing that will matter in the end. And it won't even be, the most thing, important thing won't be about having lived an interesting life. If you watch movies, a lot of times people... Um, they wrap their lives around trying to have an interesting life. Like they need to go have an adventure and they need to be thrill seekers. They need to do this and do that and travel to this place. Those things are all nice, but it's not the point of life. Having the most interesting life. I, I don't know if you remember, there used to be a commercial. And, and if you know what it is, you know what it's about. But uh, it's, it's about the most interesting man alive. You ever, heard, you ever seen that commercial? The most interesting man who ever lived. And uh, you know the one I'm talking about. Uh, there's there's several of these in the series, but this one shows him lying on a gurney in a field hospital of some kind. You can picture the tent from MASH, and he's laying in there, and the doctors are all looking on smiling, and he's stitching himself up with sutures while they smile on, and it says something like this right in the middle of that, that it says, um, the narrator says this, says, sharks have a week dedicated to him. He's the interesting man. He's the most interesting man in the world. And uh, part of his mystique is that he comes with an accent. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody seen the most interesting man commercials? Uh, I'm going, I'm going somewhere spiritual with this. Um, the funny thing about this actor is he's from New York City and he has no accent that bears anything like that. So all of it is fake. And I think that whenever we we think about what life's about. Sometimes we think about having being an interesting person, having a lot of stories to tell. And um, many times those stories can be focused on us and who we are and the things that we've done and things that we've seen. And, and they can be very interesting, but it's not the most interesting story ever told. The most interesting story ever told is found in our book here. It's the story of God. It's the story of his redemptive plan unfolding. And if you've not read your Bible, I want to tell you there's some interesting stuff in there. And the more you read it, and I know this from experience, I've been in ministry a long time, every week studying, it gets more interesting all the time. 
And anybody who study will tell you that's the truth. The better you get to know it, the more you start to see, hey, these people are like us. And you also get to see the wonderful way in which God is working. So it's better to be a part of God's story. It's better to be a part of his story. And uh, all of our stories are really second to his story. And I don't mean that whatever story we could tell, if it's interesting, um, is not important to him. It is. But it's a healthy and a right way to view things to understand that our story is not as important as his story. And that actually the best story that we can live is to be a part of what he's doing. If we're not, then we're missing out. And in the end, it will get lost under the volume and the the the, um, the gravity of what he's done. Like, have you ever been in a, a group of people and you've been telling your story and then you find out that somebody there has a far more interesting story than you do and you've been telling it all along and then they tell theirs and nobody's remembered what you've said anymore. If we want to push our story out there, in the end, this is the way it'll be, is God's story is going to crowd it out. So the best thing that you can do is you can be a part of what he's doing in the world and uh, it will change it will change everything because uh, a lot of our stories will be uh, either interesting now or interested interesting in eternity and so i wonder if it will be interesting in light of heaven i wonder if the adventure seeking will be will be dull when we get to heaven like oh yeah uh, you bungee jumped that's great but what have you done for the kingdom i mean our whole our whole set of priorities will will change, and our view of them will change in light of eternity, don't you think? And it ought to be doing that now, that we, it's, it's not wrong. If you want to go do something adventurous, fine, I'm not against that. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm saying that the most important things in our life ought to be to follow God in the adventure he's planned for us. Don't you think if he created us, he suited us for the exact place that he wants us to be in life, and that we'll never really find our fulfillment until we find our fulfillment in him and doing what he's called us to do? Until then, we're going to be wandering around lost, not knowing ourselves, looking for ourselves and never finding it. So um, without proximity to God, I just wonder about some of these other stories that we wouldn't have thought are as interesting until God came into the picture. Think of the woman at the well. If Jesus doesn't come into that story, it's just another lady gathering water. But Jesus came into the story. That changed everything. Think about uh, Zacchaeus. Remember, Zacchaeus was the wee little man. The wee little man was he? And he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Anybody sing that when you were a little kid? And uh, if Zacchaeus hadn't met with Jesus, he's just another corrupt tax collector. But Jesus came in, and that story is interesting. Jesus says at the end of it, that the kingdom of God, salvation has come to this house. The kingdom of God has come to this man this day. Some people aren't seeking adventure or significance by telling their story. They're seeking um, some kind of love God can give that too. And I want you to know, we have kids here today. I don't, I don't know if they're listening. They're probably coloring, but I imagine some of it's getting in. The best thing you can do with your life is serve God now. Don't wait. Uh, in fact, I think that God is trying to use our childhood and our adolescence as a springboard into an adulthood that's effective for him. And I'm not trying to say that kids can't be effective for God now. They can. But I'm saying that all of what we do in life is building, building, building. And God is wanting to do something great in our lives, and it's, it's not too early to start wherever you're at. If you're a, a child today, uh, God knows your name. He loves you. And he wants to use you in big ways. He wants to change the world through you. He's got a great plan and a way to use you within that if you'll trust him for it. If you're a teenager, don't squander your, your teen years on the things that this world says that's what teenage years are for. No, live with purpose, okay? Live with purpose. And if you can't see the purpose, live in the details that he's given you, okay? You know that there are certain things that are right. And even if you can't see the big picture, trust him during those times. So what can a young person can do? I think we're in the middle of an era where we're conducting an experiment. Uh, I've been listening to a couple guys, and it's interesting how some ideas that um, just seem out of nowhere tend to intersect, and God brings those about. And one of these guys named David Allen Black, and he was talking about how 
adolescence as we know it is a recent invention, that we act like that this is a time when kids ought to be kids, and, and uh, every other era in history, and probably because necessity demanded it, kids had to act a lot more like adults, and had to have jobs and be responsible and do all of those things. And, and now we've kind of pushed it back, and we're seeing it in our culture that we're starting to wonder where the line is. How long can you go on being a teenager into your 30s, into your 40s? How long? And part of the problem, I think, is that we haven't ever expected that that, that, er, that time of life is for building towards something. This is all going towards Joseph, by the way. Don't get lost in the details of this. It really, it really matters for this. But the experiment that we're running right now is that can we just have fun during a certain set of years and then flip a switch at 18 and suddenly we're an adult? Or is there a building process that needs to take place in this? If you look at history, you'll not see people acting in the same way that we do, that this is a building block for the future. How old was Joseph when he was sold into slavery and the plan of God began to be unlocked in a big way in his life? He was 17. He was 17. He said, man, that's far too young to have that much thrust upon you. Yeah, it is. And some of it's really tragic the way that it happened. But God was in it even if he didn't design the plans that the brothers would use sinfully against him. Certainly, God was still in it and saw to it that it would lead to the salvation of a nation. Okay? And it started really young. I'm not trying to start a cultural revolution here, but I do think that we should consider what we're doing today makes a difference for who will be tomorrow. And you can do great things for God while you're young. If you're not young anymore, uh, you can do great things for God when you're old, too. I just don't want there to be a lack of balance. (laughs) Okay, so when I say you can do it when you're young, you can do it. Moses, Joseph started young. Moses started old. Are you with me? And God used him in a really big way. Um, But it's not either or. But I I think that those of you who have started young and and stayed close to God, you don't have regrets that maybe others might have who've turned away. Um, We have students here right now that are stirred up for God. And um, you'll always be caught between the draw of God and maturity, you know, um, here's one of the things that sometimes we fail to understand is that a teenager who's on fire for God is still a teenager. Do you know what I mean by that? They're still maybe going to have a bad attitude sometimes and not want to clean their room and whatever else teenagers are like, you know. It's been a long time for me. But you know what I'm saying is that there's still that developmental growth that needs to take place, but God is working there. And... When we follow God, it's not instant maturity. There's a story here, and as I, I think about this, this teenage years, there's significant things that God does during those middle years. If you think about some, some of the significant figures, here's Joseph, 17. Where, how old was you think David was when he killed Goliath? 15 to 17? Can we just make that a, we don't know exactly, but somewhere in there? Okay. The weight of a nation, in a sense, was on his shoulders for this. It's not because he wanted that. He just saw that it's ridiculous that this uncircumcised Philistine could defy the armies of the living God, and somebody needs to do something about it. And he charged into battle, and he took care of business. And that set him on a road, a long road, to the throne, didn't it? And then you see Jesus, who at age 12, I know we feel that maybe he's in a whole different category, and he is in terms of his divinity, but in terms of his humanity, the thing that we ought to understand is that he's a model for us, and we see him at age 12 talking with the the PhDs and the THDs about theology and the Bible, and he's not waiting until he's 30 to develop, right? I mean, he's developing. Yes, his ministry starts somewhere around age 30, but he's developing all the way up to that. God is working in his life and causing him to mature, and to grow in favor with God and men. And, and so there's this development that's taking place. For me, um, when I really got serious about God was at age 17, and God called me in the ministry at age 17. And those, those, uh, those moments helped to develop me to be the man of God that he wanted me to be. 
Well, let's look at Joseph's story, and we'll start in chapter 30. We, you don't need to turn there unless you want to, but in chapter 30, verse 24, you, you know a little bit of the background that Jacob has tricked his way into the blessing that's caused Esau to give him a death threat. Jacob gets out of town in a hurry, goes to his uncle Laban's house. There he meets a girl. He falls in love with her, love at first sight, and he wants to marry her. And the father says, okay, uh, just one small thing. How about seven years of hard labor, <laughs> and then you can have my daughter? Well, then he gets tricked into marrying the older daughter, and then uh, he complains about it, and a week later he's given the other daughter. But guess what? Seven more years of hard labor, uh, I imagine, something like that. And then another seven years on top of that, and they come to about the end of that time, and there's a whole lot that takes place, but finally Joseph is born to Jacob and Rachel, and that's in chapter 30, verse 24. And I don't know if you knew this, but Joseph's name is a prayer. Did you know that? That when they named Joseph, it was a wish for another son. It's, uh, may the Lord add, is what Joseph means, may the Lord add to me. Another son is what Rachel cried out. I don't, maybe it's a good prayer. Her next uh, son, she names Ben Oni, a son of my suffering. And Jacob's like, we're not having that. Uh, he's going to be Benjamin, son of my right hand, my strength. And so his name is a prayer. It's a, it, it was after the birth of Joseph that Jacob began to set himself to leave Laban's and to return to the promised land and face whatever whatever waited for him there. And so Joseph, Joseph's birth marks the beginning of a new direction, even in the life of all of Israel. Okay, so he's born. They're going to separate from Laban. They're going to separate from whatever idolatry is there, and they're going to begin to, to head back. I know that they carry some idols with them, but it's a separation that takes place, and it's back in the right direction. And Joseph Joseph's birth seems to be the catalyst for that. And then we see Joseph was his father's favorite can we stop here and say this plainly, that not everything that is, is the way that it should be? Okay, To say that something is, is not the same thing as saying this is right. Come on, not true? I mean, there's a lot of things that are, that aren't, that aren't right. And just because Jacob is a biblical figure and because he's considered the, a patriarch, it doesn't mean that showing favoritism with his sons is right. And there's some negative outcomes as a result of that, and God's going to use even that. But Joseph uh, was his father's favorite. When, when Jacob is coming back to the promised land, uh, he hears that Esau is on his way. And you remember that he split his family, and then he organizes his family to meet Esau. And the way that he organizes them, he puts the lesser-loved wives up front and the lesser-loved sons up front in case Esau comes, swords drawn, then the ones who have the best possibility of escape are at the back. Guess who they are? It's Rachel and Joseph. And so that makes a statement to the sons, I love Joseph more than you. Okay, so uh, that's in chapter 33, verse 2. Joseph is the only one of the children named by Moses in that whole story as they're coming to the to the to meet Esau he doesn't name Moses doesn't name any of the other sons he only names Joseph and here's the interesting thing is Moses is not from the tribe of Joseph he's from the tribe of Levi so it's a very peculiar and it stands out that that only Joseph would be named in that story and then on top of that um, Jacob gives to Joseph a special robe we don't know exactly what this is. You've probably heard coat of many colors. If you follow musicals, you've probably heard of the Technicolor dream coat, and uh, that's certainly not true. But um, we don't know exactly what this means. It's translated many colors. Uh, some translations say ornate. Some say that it simply had long sleeves as a tunic. It was a tunic with long sleeves. Um, some translations say that it was special or beautiful. We don't know exactly what the word means. But whatever it was, it was enough to instigate his brother's hatred for him. And they hated that coat. And they hated Joseph wearing that coat. And that he was the favorite and the father doted on him. And the Bible says very plainly that Jacob loved Joseph more than the other brothers. And his brothers hated him for it. And they only had mean things to say to him. Okay, imagine you're just a little, I don't know if you're any little brothers out here. 
you know, the one thing that you want is your big brother's approval, right? And when they just can't stand you, and you don't know why, although Joseph a little bit didn't help himself in some of this, but um, you just don't know why. That can be heartbreaking. And then we, we hear in another passage in chapter 37, he, he, he um, tattletailed on his brothers too. They weren't doing something right, and he told his father about it, and they didn't like him for that. And then on top of that, uh, Joseph had dreams in chapter 37, verses 5 through 7. Uh, he had dreams, and he made the mistake. I don't know if it, even if it was a mistake. I think it needed to be said, but it's unfortunate because these kinds of things stir things up in family. If you look at chapter 37, verses, um, sorry, verses 5 and following, look at what it says there. We need to read some of this out of the Scripture. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves out of grain out of the field, and suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and what he had said. Now, God does give dreams, and he gives us not just literal dreams. I think that happens too, but he gives us other dreams. And sometimes when you share those with the wrong people whose disposition is not towards you, they can hate you for it. They can despise you for it. Maybe they already don't like you, and because they don't like you, because of the direction that you feel God is leading in life, they despise you all the more. Well, I don't know if this was the wise thing to do to share this, but I know that it set in place a prophecy that would be fulfilled. Okay? And so there was a divine uh, order or a divine purpose in that happening. But he had a dream, and then he had another dream where in, chap- in verse uh, 9, then he had another dream, and uh, he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. Oh, good. They probably thought. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down on the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Does that remind you of any New Testament passages? Remember when it talks about in Luke, Luke's really good about this, giving these purpose statements. And he, he's, he will every once in a while summarize and he'll say this. Mary treasured all of these things in her heart. It's like there's something of significance that was being clung to here. And his father remembered this, and it was going to come alive later when he realizes that God was in all of this. But Joseph had dreams. Joseph had dreams. And God was speaking to Joseph, uh, though I don't think he knew it at the time. I think he just had this dream and thought, that's really peculiar that I have two dreams that were very similar. And so he kind of set that on the shelf. And I don't know if this is time to do that, but anytime um, you feel God may be speaking to you on a dream, put it on the shelf. Let God work through it. And if it's meant to be, he'll bring it about. Okay. Um, so he, he mentioned the dream that was there. And then we find that uh, he's obedient to his father. In chapter 37, once again, verses 12 through 36, Jacob sends Joseph out to check on his brother. He's got an ally. He can trust Joseph to tell him if the brothers are up to no good, if they're not watching the sheep, if they're not doing what they're supposed to. He sends Joseph out. I'm sure the brothers love that, that Joseph was coming out to check on them. And so he said, go do this. And he said, I will. He gets out there. He gets a little bit lost in the wilderness. And he says some, to some strange guy who finds him there, have you seen my, my family? They're out here somewhere. And he points him in the right direction. And so the brothers look at the horizon. They see Joseph coming a distance off. And they come up with a plan. They plot to kill him. And if you look at verses 18 and following here, you can see this begin to unfold. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. And listen to what they say in verse 19. Here comes that dreamer. Like they're getting, he's getting persecuted for the dreams he's got. And then they said to each other, come now, let, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see, listen, then we'll see what comes of those dreams. Okay. Do you realize 
it, occur, it occurs to me that if those dreams don't come true, they're doomed. Are you with me? You know what their dream? You know what his dreams are? His dreams are associated with the place that he'll be one day where he can actually provide grain for his family during famine and preserve their lives. And what they can see is only short-sighted. Like, I don't like you. You're standing in the way. You're the father's favorite. There's these bitter, petty resentments that stand in the way. And what God is dealing with is on a much bigger scale than that. It's for the saving of many lives. But if they had actually done what they thought, it would have changed the whole plan. Now, I, I don't want to speculate, would God have done it? Certainly he would have. He's going to preserve salvation's plan. But do you realize what they're wishing here? They're wishing to interfere with the way that God would otherwise work. And so they want to kill him. They're short-sighted. Reuben intervenes, and he says, hey, let's just put him in the cistern, and then um, Genesis gives us this little note that says what Reuben wanted to do was come back later and get him out. So he's got the right heart in all of this. And uh, Judah says, no, let's not kill him. <laughs> let's just sell him into slavery. Oh, that, that's so great. And Judah, wonderful, wonderful older brother here. Judah is the, um, the forebear of the Messiah, and so we give him honor for that. But he's not always a virtuous man. In fact, it takes a chapter break right after this to tell us of his rascally dealings with his daughter-in-law and how that produces a child. And so he's not a, he's not a paragon of virtue by any means. But Judah intervenes, and uh, they strip him of his robe. That's kind of an interesting thing that they would do. They take his robe off of him, throw him into the cistern, and then uh, 28 and 36 tell us that they they see some traders coming through. At first it calls them Ishmaelites, and then it calls them Midianites. And uh, there's a lot of different theories about why that's the case, but let me just simplify it with this, is that both Ishmael and Midian are descendants of Abraham. And this could be nothing more than two families traveling together. Okay, So they're out there. They purchase Joseph. They take him into captivity. And uh, then the brothers take the robe and smear it with blood, and they convince their father that he's been killed. And uh, they do so just by simply presenting a bloody robe, saying, we don't know what happened to Joseph. Let, them draw, let him draw the conclusion. And they let him continue to draw the conclusion for many, many years. How um, heartless and ruthless is that? But that's what they did. And so the thing we need to know about the families of the Bible is that some of them are really messed up. And God still used them to produce uh, a, his redemptive plan. That doesn't in any way excuse bad behavior or our responsibility in being messed up. Come on, are you with me? Just because God still uses us doesn't mean it makes it okay that we act the way we do. Okay, We have to take responsibility for that. But the point that I'm trying to make is that God is so good, he is so wise, and he is so powerful that despite all of that, he can still produce something good out of the mess. And we see that in Scripture. And so if you feel like, man, I come from a messed up family too, I don't want you today to discount yourself from being used by God. You might look at other lives and go, they come from a really good family. They can be used by God in a big way. Yeah, but God's going to use them in one way, and God's going to use you in another. And maybe even in the same way, it's God who gets the glory, and it's God who can do the good thing. And so don't write yourself out of his story because of your family circumstance. Well, Joseph goes into slavery. He goes to Egypt, and he's, he's uh, sold to a man named Potiphar. And he becomes a slave in Potiphar's house, but God prospers him. And the Bible says that the Lord was with him, and he prospered him. And I don't know if you knew this, but the predecessor to the King James Version is Tyndale's translation. Did you know that? Tyndale was about 80 years before 1611, and most of the King James is built upon the Tyndale translation. Do you know what Tyndale says about Joseph? The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a lucky fella. That's what it says. He was a lucky fella. In other words, God was with him, and he had some kind of holy luck. In other words, he's prospered. It seemed that everything that he did was prospering in his hand. I don't believe in secular luck, but I do believe that when God is with you, he can make you prosper when it doesn't make sense. Okay, are you with me? Okay, so um, 
Joseph serving in the house. Potiphar's house is increasing. And then Potiphar's wife took a liking to Joseph. Some people have speculated because of Potiphar's position that he might have been a eunuch. And so he had a wife, but she was looking elsewhere. And she looked for Joseph. Joseph, day after day, resisted her advances until finally one day she caught hold of his robe and he ran off and he said something like this, how could I sin against the Lord in this way? He refused to sin in that way. And the question that probably should come to our mind is that we have a young man who's in a place in life where it seems like it's only dead ends. And he feels like he's probably been abandoned by God. And he's far from his family. He's far from any accountability. In Egypt, they don't have the same sexual ethics. Sorry to bring that up. The kids are here. But what stops Joseph from saying yes to temptation? God has worked on his heart, and he's a virtuous person. And in the middle of that, he refuses, even though it costs him. That's kind of heroic, don't you think? And so he refuses that. She lies about it. Anybody been lied on before? She lies about it, and it throws him, it gets him thrown into jail. And he spends two years in jail. While he's in jail in chapter 40, this is chapter 40, chapter 39 is wrongly accused. Chapter 40, Joseph interprets some dreams. A couple guys end up in the clink with him, and they're sharing the dreams that they've had. They're really depressed. And Joseph said, well, tell me about your dreams. And, and I'm not going to unpack all of that. You can read that in chapter 40. And they tell their dreams. There's a there's a cupbearer and a baker, and they have different dreams. And Joseph tells the cupbearer, you're going to be restored to your position of honor. And he tells the baker, the baker's ready to get his good news. Sorry, sorry, bro. It doesn't end well for you. And, uh, of course, uh, he's, he's going to lose, he'd be executed, lose his life. And So the cupbearer gets released, and he goes back into service of Pharaoh. And the Bible tells us something interesting at the end of that chapter that when the cupbearer gets uh, released from prison, he's forgotten about what Joseph told him, okay, because the moment's not there. And while he was forgotten by the cupbearer, he wasn't forgotten by God. If you're in a situation where you feel like you've been forgotten, realize that God's got your number, and he knows where you're at, and he knows what's going on. And so the interesting thing is in chapter 41, verse 1, it tells us, then Pharaoh had a dream. He's forgotten by the cupbearer. The cupbearer goes back to his life and oblivious to what Joseph's done and gives no further thought to it. He's back in his comfortable place. And what does it matter anymore about some guy I met back there? But the Bible says, it almost seems providential there if you, you read it. It, and it is providential. Look at it in chapter 41. Chapter 41, verse 1. Let me get there. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Pharaoh had a dream. And it tells us he was standing by the Nile, and uh, he saw seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed upon the reeds. And after them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the river, uh, riverside or riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate the seven sleek cows and fat cows, and then Pharaoh woke up. He has another dream that's very similar to it. And he's, he asks all of his um, psychologists and psychoanalysts <laughs> and fortune tellers and all the magicians to come in, interpret this dream. And they can't do it. So then the cupbearer remembers Joseph. Providential, isn't it? That God puts that thought in his mind. What about Joseph? He, he uh, remembered. He, he knows how to interpret dreams. So they bring Joseph in, and Pharaoh says to him, can you interpret this dream? And what does Joseph say? I cannot. I can't do it. This is such a great view of the way that we should hold on to any spiritual giftings that God gives us. We cannot, but God can. We cannot. God can. We cannot save people. God can. We cannot heal people. God can. We can't speak in tongues, but God's Spirit can through us. Are, are you with me? Do you see where I'm going? That we, we, have a, we hold these things with loose hands and understand that it's God who does the heavy lifting in this. And he says, I cannot, but God knows what it means in chapter 41, verse 16. And so he interprets the dream. And 
Pharaoh says, that's it. That's got to be it. And he says, you're so wise and discerning, and God is with you. I'm just going to make you second in command, and everything has to go through you. And so come up with a plan so that we don't, and, and the plan was because seven years of plenty would be followed by seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh's like, we need to be prepared for this. Let's get ready. And I want you to notice how a spiritual gift turns into practical wisdom. It's practical wisdom. Sometimes we think the spiritual things need to be spooky and out there and weird. It's practical wisdom. Let's prepare for what's coming. And so he sets in place this program that's going to enable uh, Egypt to have enough grain to sustain not only them, but the people of the world are going to come to Egypt to find uh, food during that time. And so he interprets the dreams, and uh, Pharaoh elevates him to a position. He's recognized by Pharaoh as wise and discerning in chapter 41, verse 39 through 49. We won't read all that. He begins to store up grain for a time of famine in verse 53 of chapter 41. In uh, 41:57, the whole world came to buy grain. And then it tells us that Jacob and his sons are down in Canaan, and they're experiencing the effects of famine too. What are we going to do about it? You boys, why are you standing here twiddling your thumbs? That's what Jacob says, something like that. You need to get on down to Egypt right now because I hear they got grain. And so they do. They send them down there, and of course... It's divine appointment. Uh, Joseph recognizes them immediately. They don't recognize him. And he has, I would say he has a little fun with them, but I don't think it's about that. I think it's about something else altogether. But he doesn't make it easy on them. And so he sends them through this rigmarole about going and coming and bringing certain family members and, and just deals with them in this kind of, you would think it would be a harsh way. And finally, they can, he convinces them, do you, have a, do you have a father back home? Do you have a brother? Well, it's his younger brother, Benjamin, that's back home. I need you to bring him. I need you to bring your father up. Well, um, when he's doing all of that, he, he plants this cup in one of the grains of rice, and then he accuses them of stealing it, and they have to come back. And he says that it, it was in Benjamin's sack. And so they're worried that now... This second son of Jacob's from Rachel is going to get killed. and So they throw themselves on the ground before him. Did you catch that? They threw themselves on the ground before them. Chapter 44, verse 14. They threw themselves on the ground before him just as it happened in the dream. They God fulfilled the dream. The dream was fulfilled that God showed him ahead of time. And then it's, it's almost, uh, if you're reading it right, it's tearful and fearful as the, the big reveal happens. Do you ever watch those shows on TV where they have the big reveal, like the, the long-lost son comes in and they meet one another and there's tears? Or Home Makeover where they pull the thing off the house and everybody's crying, there's the big reveal. This is the big reveal. Joseph can't take it anymore. He's about to bawl. He sends everybody out of the room and he starts to speak to his brothers in Hebrew. And they realize, and imagine there was tears, and imagine there were fears that went along with that. Like, what are you going to do to us now? And Joseph says at the end of this, this great theological truth in Genesis fifty twenty. Do you know Romans eight twenty eight? All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All things, and that means the things that are good, the bad, and the ugly. That those things can work together towards God's purpose too, right? Are you with me on that? This is Genesis 50.20 is the Old Testament, Romans 8.28. It says this, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And then he says, Don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and for your children. He reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. You intended to harm me, killing me, throwing me into the pit, selling me to the the merchants that were traveling through. But while you were intending all of that, God was using your wicked actions to produce a good. This is the way God works. Joseph could have gotten the victim mentality and said, you know, this is just the pits. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do anything for God anymore. This is the way that it's going to be. Or 
I'm not forget about my family. I'm getting revenge. You know, it's like one of those action movies where somebody's set out for revenge, and they're going to take out everybody in the process. It's something. It could have been something like that, but something else was happening here, and he was kind and this whole purpose. And I think Joseph began to see it that this was a divine setup. Okay, not the brothers' bad decisions. I want to be very clear that I don't necessarily think that that those bad decisions were God's plan, but he foresaw those bad decisions and used them to place Joseph where he needed to be to save the family. Okay, I think that's really important. And so here's the first major theological principle. There's two of them, and then we're done, and we can smile a little bit. Okay, number one is God can work with and through bad circumstances. Okay, that's first. God can work, can work with and through bad circumstances. And this includes the sinful choices of people. I don't mean that God causes people to sin, but he can take those free choices and still bring good out of him. He's that great and he's that good. And I think it's a small conception of God that can only see his advances through nice things. That's a small conception. It can, it's only, God can only work when things are going smoothly, when we feel like we're prospered and blessed. Listen, Joseph was used by God, and God prospered him, but he also had a lot of difficulty. Anyone disagree with that? I mean, he was sold into slavery, hated by his family, um, lied about, thrown into jail, all of those things. And we still hear the Lord was with him, and he was a lucky fellow. He was prospered in all that he did. What about those other things? Yeah, they're there. But that doesn't mean that God's not accomplishing his purpose. Okay? So it's a small conception of God that only sees him working through nice things. He can also work through the ugly things and the mean things and the hateful things and the sinful things. Not him causing them, but working through and in spite of them. And I think that's really good news for us because we live in a fallen world. And what that means for us is that God can take the enemy's very weapons away and use them against him. And it means that the choices that other people make don't determine our final outcomes. That's good. Think of the cross. The cross was intended to finish Jesus off. Instead, it became the way that we're saved. He took the weapon that was intended against him and used it against the enemy. I like uh, how it says in Colossians that um, he took the written code that stood against us and nailed it to to the tree. And then it says, he disarmed the powers. That's what you do when you, you're victorious in battle. You strip their weapons away. Normally in a victory parade in the Roman um, triumph, they would have a section within the parade where they would carry all the enemy's weapons as a demonstration that we've taken their weapons away. And at the end of this parade, we're going to use them against them. And that's exactly what Christ has done. And this, I think, he used the meanness of the brothers in a way against them. He used it against the plot of the enemy. The second point, see how quickly we're moving? God expects faithfulness no matter what our circumstances are. Okay? We don't get to say, well, I've had a bad draw in life, and so I'm going to act bad. We don't get to say that. Not if we're going to be faithful to Christ. We don't get to say, well, I have an excuse for bad behavior because I'm tired. Don't get to do that. Or people have been mean to me or I've come from bad circumstances. God's grace is enough to make up for all of that, don't you think? His, his sufficiency is enough to make up for all of that. If he can bring good out of it, then we can, with his help, live right during it. And Joseph is the example of that. I find that Joseph's example strips us of many of the usual excuses, don't you? My family's messed up. I can't be a good Christian. Or I've been bullied. People bully me. Well, Joseph got bullied. Um, I'm away from home and everything that's familiar. I can't live for God in a situation like that. Well, Joseph did, and he didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of him like we do. And what about, um, I'm surrounded by the world. There's just worldly people all around. How can I not sin with all this sin around me? Uh, do you think that God can keep you spotless in, a, in the world like this? I do. I think that we can be sinless in a sinful world with God's help. Okay, so he can make us able to do that. And we might think we're a victim of circumstances. I think of the Three Stooges every time I say that. Uh, I'm just a victim of circumstance. 
Uh, I think of that, but, but think about this, that lots of things seem stacked against Joseph, but that wasn't his excuse. He remained faithful to God in the middle of it. And faithfulness comes from faith, faith that God is working in spite of not always seeing how he's working. We don't have to see how he's working. He is working. And then faithfulness comes from trusting him when it looks like we might have been forgotten. Hey, you haven't been forgotten, and we know that somewhere deep down. We know it from Scripture that God hasn't forgotten us. And we hear other people, God saying, like to Cornelius, your, your good deeds have come up as a memorial before the Lord. And, and God hearing the cries of his people in Egypt, they're not forgotten there when they were there later in the story. But we need to trust him when it looks like we, we have been forgotten. And then believing when things get really bad. We need to continue to trust him when things get really bad. Be faithful, and he'll make, your, he'll make sure that it matters. Okay, So we don't have to always know how the big purposes work. We just need to be faithful. I think that most of God's will is simply living the life that he's called us to live. It's not, most of God's will is not about where. We, we get wrapped up in where. Like, I need to know, God, where you want me. It's not about where most of the time. Most of what God wants from you is how. How are you going to live? in these circumstances. Then if he needs to change the where, he can do that. Okay, But most of God's will, I think, is about how we're going to respond to circumstances. Are we going to be, are we going to be ugly or loving? You know, Are we going to be faithful to him? Are we going to be compromising? Things like that. And I, I think a good piece of advice for us from Scripture is that when we don't understand some of the big picture stuff, like what's going on in the big picture, what God's doing behind the scenes. Trust the Lord and do the things that you know, the little things that you know. Be faithful in the little things. Big picture is not always seen. Do the little things right. If you can't see, like Joseph, I can't see where God is taking me. I'm, I'm, in, I'm sold into slavery in somebody else's house. Do the thing you know it's right. Don't compromise in your relationships. Okay? You see what I'm saying? Be faithful in the things that we know when you don't know some of the other things and hold on to God and he will bring you through all that. And then here's the other thing that stands out is that God uses suffering to save. I don't, we don't want to hear that. We, we as Americans are the best in the world at trying to avoid suffering. We are. We've got all kinds of ways to do that, whether it's emotional suffering or physical suffering or relational suffering. We've got ways to, tactics to deal with all of that. If we've got a headache, we take an aspirin. I'm the worst about that. I don't want to deal with a headache, okay? Uh, but we, we, want to, we, know how to, we know how to kind of deal with that and push that off. But do you know that God uses that sometimes? I'm not suggesting to you that we love, like, running face forward into difficulty, I'm saying that sometimes in trying to avoid certain things, we may actually be avoiding the plan of God. And here we see an example of that, how God uses an underdog to change a nation, a troubled upbringing, away from home, falsely accused, subservient, righteous. He suffered, and then he was exalted. And if you look at it close enough, you can see some similarities between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. I'm not trying to say this is salvation story. It's a, it's a story of salvation, not in the same way. And I'm not trying to force this to fit. Like you can't reconcile the fact Jesus is the firstborn and Joseph, he's 11 of 12. And Joseph didn't die to save them. He just suffered. He went through some trial in order that he could be in the right position to give them grain so that the nation of Israel could survive. And it was bigger than him. God's plan was bigger than Joseph's comfort. Do you know that? Because what is at stake here is the promise of God. If the nation of Israel dies from famine, the promised plan of God dies from famine. Because the promise has already been that through this seed, all the nations will be blessed. Through this seed, through this nation, Messiah will come. If they die of famine, God's promise fails. And so he takes a young man who's 17 and allows a bunch of things to happen in his life that are to his distaste. His plan for life, his five-year, 10-year, 15-year plan is shot. But God's plan survives. God's plan thrives because Joseph 
was willing to go through all of that and remain faithful to the Lord. It's not exactly the same. And I'm not trying to say that Joseph is a symbol of Jesus. Instead, it seems to me that this is an echo or an illustration of a later event by a similarity of some of the details of the story. There are, there's a preparation for the later story that's an analogy that prepares for that bigger event, that there's going to come another one who's going to leave home and he's going to enter into a type of servitude and he's going to suffer and his suffer is going to mean the salvation of many. Do you see that? There's a little bit of a parallel here. I'm not trying to overlap it and make it an allegory. I'm saying, look, God seems to do this again and again, that he will allow difficulty in the lives of some for the salvation of many. He will allow his son to be poured out unto death for the salvation of you and me. And this shows a pattern in the way that God would choose to do things later. Well, today I think um, a great encouragement to us ought to be that we shouldn't discount how God might use us. He was 17 when he was being prepared for how God would use him. Adolescence, as I was saying earlier, isn't for goofing off. It's preparation for all God's plan in your life in the biblical model. Joseph, David, Christ, they're not yet 18 when God was setting them in the direction that their lives would go. And I think it's important that we understand that God has a way to work within our lives. And if we're thinking about adventure and a great story, there's no greater story than the story God will bring you on. Look, you know where I'd be if I didn't follow God? And I don't mean to put down folks in in Kansas living their best life. Uh, but I could imagine myself living within a city and being very comfortable there. Never going outside of that comfort zone. Never really traveling. Just kind of getting through life. And instead, God's brought me on an adventure I never imagined. My adventure is not your adventure. You might find my life pretty boring. But I'm telling you, for me, this is an adventure, and it's because it started with a yes to God. And he's got something for you that's similar to that, that's perfectly suited to who you are, who you're created to be. If you say yes to him, man, he can do great things. Somebody's going to get saved in your life if you'll be faithful to the Lord. Somebody is going to come to know him. It's going to matter for an eternal destiny. So will you say yes to the Lord today? Will you trust him? Will you trust him? Maybe you're going through some hard times right now. Will you trust him through it and say, I don't know what this is about, but I know you, and I know you're faithful, and I can trust you. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your attention today. Amen. Let's bow our heads and take a moment here before we go. The altar is about coming to a place where we meet with Jesus. It's not just about meeting with him for the first time. Sometimes people treat the altar like it's only where you get the introduction. No, this is more than that. This is a place where we can we can come and meet with him and maybe we need to deal with some business or we need to talk relationship or we need to help some help to get through some stuff. So I'd like to invite you if you want to come to come to the altar and spend a few moments in prayer. Maybe you're in that place where you feel like you're not sure where this, what, what this is all about at the moment. You just want to hang on and be faithful to him. And it's been difficult, but you're committing today to say, yes to the Lord and walk faithfully with him. This would be a great place to do that. Maybe you've never met Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, and he's got to be both. And that means that we we trust him to save us by, by surrendering our lives to him, but we also are trusting him to lead us, which means he gets the say regarding direction in our life. He paid the price by laying down his own life for us. He died on a cross. His death, God saw sufficient to to cover our sins and to welcome us back. And to all who will turn to him, he welcomes as sons and daughters. But we have to come not just with faith for heaven, but faith for living in this world as well. And that faith just says, Lord, I'm trusting you with my life. I give it to you. And in that exchange, he takes our sin and he imputes to to us his righteousness and we are in a reconciled relationship with God that was once broken but now healed.
because of him. If you just simply say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I give my life to you. In that kind of prayer, if you mean it, and you're really offering, God will meet you in that, and it'll begin a change in your life, a supernatural change in which, which something takes place deeply on the inside. So I might not have covered what it is that you need to pray about today, but if you'd like to come to the altar, please do that. We're going to take about five or ten minutes here before we go, and if you'd like to stay longer, you're welcome to do that. I think uh, it's important that we recognize when we come to Jesus that our life no longer belongs to us. It belongs to him. And if uh, that's a hard pill to swallow, it's because we don't know the goodness of our God. We don't know that he knows us better than we know ourselves. And then he knows how to bring us to the fullest life that he's created us for. Father, we just pray today that you help us to um, trust you enough to, to, to set our lives in your hands completely and to walk with you, Lord, through every path, to reach out to you in every difficulty and every trying time when the the dark night of the soul sets in and we don't know what to do. We cling to what we do know, that you're good, that you're wise, that you're capable, that uh, you know where we're at. And I pray, Jesus, that you fulfill your purpose in each of us and bring us safely to your heavenly kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.